Well, hello everybody. Um, my name is Paul O'Halloran. I'm a partner at um, Denton's Australia. Welcome to our webinar on IR Insights, where today we'll be exploring the new IR legislation that the Albanese government uh, has, has passed through the Senate. And I'm um, pleased to be joined by my colleague, Peter Watkins, uh, in our Melbourne office. How are you, Peter? Very well, thanks, Paul. How are you? Good. Now, we've spent, um, and you in particular, have spent many, many hours examining this uh, this legislation um, to get to the nuts and bolts of what it's all about. Um, and I think there's, you'll agree with me, there's a, quite a lot of misinformation out there about this uh, these IR amendments. And we've seen some incorrect information in the media and from other law firms as well. But today we're going to focus on I think probably 12 um, of the key questions you might have about this legislation. So before we kick off, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that I'm on today. I'm joining you from the Nam land and I pay my respects to the elders uh, past, present and future. So today, as you can see on our screen, we're gonna talk about these 12 areas flexible work arrangements, fixed term contracts, multi-enterprise agreements, industrial action, intractica intractable bargaining, that's a hard one to spit out, better off overall test, um, the notorious uh, uh, multi-enterprise bargaining, termination of enterprise agreements, sexual harassment changes, domestic violence leave, anti-discrimination and pay secrecy. So, Let's get straight into it, um, Peter. I know you're eager to tell us about um, some of these new areas. Um, so first up, let's talk about flexible work arrangements. There's now more capacity, uh, Pete, for the Fair Work Commission to resolve disputes around flexible work arrangements. What are the changes in this area? Thanks, Paul. So there are principally three changes to flexible work arrangements. So the first is the category of employees who can make these requests has now expanded. There are more onerous requirements on an employee when they are refusing a request for flexible work. And now employees will have an avenue to challenge a request for flexible work if it is refused. So starting with the category of employees who can now make a flexible request, this has been expanded to include those who are experiencing family and domestic violence or providing care to a member of the employee's family or household who is experiencing family and domestic violence. And this is a broader test than the previous wording, which was violence from a member of the employee's family. An employee who is also pregnant can now make a request for flexible work. So the requirement the, the employer respond in 21 days is still there, but the more onerous requirements now are, if the employer is refusing that request, they must first discuss the request with the employee. They must genuinely try to reach agreement and that includes trying to accommodate the request. So for example, if someone requests to work from home four days a week and you can't accommodate that, but you think you can accommodate two days a week, then that needs to be put to the employee. And finally, the request can only be refused on reasonable business grounds, which these have remained the same. So if this request is refused, in writing, the employer must set out the reasonable business grounds on which they are refusing this request and say how these relate to the employee's specific request. They must also state any alternative arrangement that would accommodate this request. So as I was saying before, it could be you can meet them in the middle 
or state that there is no change that they can make. And finally, they must inform the employee that they can bring a dispute to challenge the refusal of the request. So this is similar to where an employee can bring a dispute under an enterprise agreement or an award, and the Commission can use its mediation and its conciliation powers to resolve the dispute. What it can also do is arbitrate the dispute if that is necessary, if it isn't resolved. And under these new powers, the Commission can make a wide range of order, um, but most importantly, it can determine whether there was or was not reasonable business grounds for refusing the request. And it can also require the employer grant the request or accommodate the request to a certain extent. A reform that was always um, also put into the amendments was an ability to challenge um, a refusal to extend a period of unpaid parental leave and the process for dealing with that request and um, informing the employee of the outcome is very similar to flexible work requests. So it'll be very important for managers, HR, council who are dealing with these requests to make sure they understand the requirements they need to set out in writing, because if a dispute is brought by an employee, um, this will be the evidence that is tendered in any dispute. Mm, interesting. And I wonder if uh, working from home requests are going to feature more permanently um, or specifically as part of these um, this, these new um, areas of disputation. Very possible. Um, now, on flexible work arrangements, uh, sorry, fixed term contracts, Peter, um, there's been a lot of worry about amendments in this area. What are the new rules around fixed term uh, contracts? And what are the exceptions? Yeah, so this is probably one of the more complicated changes um, coming in. So I'll, I'll start first by saying that these, these changes deal with fixed term contracts, and that is a contract that has an end date. And at the end of that date, the contract comes to an end. But this is defined to also include what is referred to as a maximum term or an outer limit contract. So that, that is similar to a fixed term contract that has an end date. But under one of those contracts, a parties the parties usually have a right to terminate the contract earlier. So, for example, on one week's notice. These changes come into effect on the 6th of December next year. Um, it says in the legislation or an earlier date fixed by proclamation. Minister Burke has said that will not occur. So we can assume these are coming in on the 6th of December. Um, although it is important to note and quite complicated thing that in the transitional provisions, um, consecutive contracts that are entered into, um, they can be counted. So I'll talk about them in a moment. So the prohibition on fixed term contracts is quite complicated, but broadly, this is what um, is prohibited under the new rules. So if the identifiable period of a contract is more than two years, it is not allowed. If the sum of a contract is more than two years, taking into account extensions or renewals, it is not allowed. And finally, if the contract provides an option to renew or extend the contract more than once, that is also not allowed. So maybe an easy way of thinking of that is it's a prohibition on having more than two contracts, that is more than three or more fixed term contracts in a row. There is also a prohibition on consecutive fixed term contracts. So that is different fixed term contracts where the employee is doing the same or substantially similar work and there is a substantial continuity of employment. And once again, um, the rules that feature in this are a contract not being longer than two years, the periods of a contract not being longer than two years when you add them up, and um, this prohibition generally on having three or more fixed-term contracts. One of the more interesting parts of these reforms is if there is a fixed-term contract that offends this provision, the end date will be invalid, um, but the contract will remain on foot. So that will have the practical effect of meaning that contract becomes permanent and the employees will have access to entitlements such as notice, redundancy if that is necessary, 
and they will also have unfair dismissal coverage. The Commission also has power to deal with disputes under these new provisions. However, it can only arbitrate if both parties agree. And there are anti-avoidance provisions, so that will mean an employer can't d d deliberately, for example, um, dismiss someone and re-engage someone to avoid the imposition of these new provisions. And finally, the Fair Work Ombudsman, um, similar to the Fair Work Information Statement, um, they have been tasked with preparing a fixed-term contract information statement, which will need to be given to employees before the fixed-term contract is entered into or as soon as practical after the fixed-term contract is entered into. This slide includes the exceptions that are listed um, under the Act, so the prohibitions will not apply if one or more of these exceptions applies. We think um, some of the more important or more common ones will be the high income threshold, so an employee earning $162,000 or more will not be caught by these provisions. Um, if a modern award permits fixed-term contracts, then that will be allowed. And we think we may see variation um, applications for awards to potentially either include or exclude certain fixed term contracts from being allowed. And finally, um, it has been left open um, that regulations can then be introduced to um, include further categories which may fall outside of the prohibition. Mm, well, I mean, I don't know about you, Peter, but I think this is probably one of the most complex areas of the of the legislation. I know uh, I think you spent several hours reading and rereading these provisions to try and understand how they work and maybe a flowchart or something visual is the best way to reflect it. But um, your slide there on the exceptions is is helpful. I think this is one area where obviously, and, and we're getting a lot of questions uh, coming through right now. So can't answer all of them today, but I think this is one area where employers are going to have to get specific advice um, relevant to their operations. And it's probably a subject matter um, webinar within itself, I think. So we have over 200 people um, viewing this. So we will see how we go at the end with questions. There's a Q&A box, obviously, if we can't answer them live, we'll get back to um, We'll try and get back to people individually. Um, but moving on perhaps to probably the most controversial area, multi-employer enterprise agreements, some of the bargaining streams in this area exist in the Fair Work Act. Some have been reworked. There's a new bargaining stream that's been added. We've done our best with a little diagram there to, to reflect that. There are new roping in provisions, which I think are, are really significant and haven't got a lot of uh, attention in the media. Pete, what are the new, the three new bargaining streams? What factors need to be satisfied? And can businesses avoid being hauled into this new world of multi-enterprise agreements? Thanks, Paul. Yeah, this is um, definitely the most um, complicated reform and most controversial form that has been introduced. Um, and this flowchart here seeks to, I guess, focus attention on what we'll be discussing now. So at the bottom, we've got our single enterprise agreements, um, which have always been around. Some changes have been made to them, which we'll get to later. But the focus on this next part of the webinar will be on the multi-enterprise agreements and these three streams here. So there's the single interest stream, supported stream, and the cooperative stream. And as we go through them, I'll do my best to make sure it's clear which one I'm talking about. And um, we're also going to substitute in various names to hopefully focus attention on what each stream is hoping to achieve. 
So this is the first stream, which is called the single interest stream. So under this stream, a bargaining representative, um, most likely a union, can apply to the commission for an authorization. And the effect of this authorization will be they can compel multiple employers um, to bargain together for an enterprise agreement. A range of factors must be met and they're set out on the slide. So the employers must have clearly identifiable common interests. The operations and the business activities of each employer must be reasonably comparable. At least some of the employees, not all, but some of the employees must be covered by a union. So unions will be involved. The employer and the union have had the opportunity to express their views on the application. A majority of the employees of each employer want to bargain with the employers. And finally, it is not contrary to the public interest. So some of the matters which the Commission may take into account, um, there could be more um, under this stream, include the location of the employers, the regulatory regime which applies to the employers, and the nature of the enterprise, including the terms and conditions in those enterprises. So as you'll see from those factors, these are quite general and broad. So I think it's easiest to think when you think single interest, you can think of this as general multi-employer bargaining. So um, the first question that probably comes up is these streams are quite broad. Um, who don't they apply to? So an employer who does not agree to the authorization, so they challenge the authorization, will be exempt in the following circumstances. So the first is they employ less than 20 employees, so that's 19 or less. Um, the employees and the employee are covered by an EA that is not yet to pass its nominal expiry date, or if the employer and the union who represents the interests of some of the employees um, have agreed to bargain for a single enterprise agreement. There is also a grace period of nine months which exists and that's after the nominal expiry date where the Commission may exercise its discretion. It doesn't need to, but it may exercise its discretion not to make the authorization if the parties are bargaining in good faith for an enterprise agreement and they have a history of effective bargaining. But once again, they don't need to grant this grace period. And under this stream, employees can take protected industrial action and the good faith bargaining obligations also apply. Um, this next bit here is on the roping in. And to clarify, we are still talking about this first general stream of bargaining. And roping in can best be described as so. Firstly, there's the last slide we were on. There's this authorization. The employers in that authorization bargain together. They reach an agreement. This gets to the commission. It's approved and that agreement is in effect. These roping in provisions apply to an employer who may not have been part of that bargaining at all. But for example, a union goes to their workplace and says, what do you think of this agreement? If a majority of the affected employers say, we want to be covered by that EA, then a union without the consent of that employer can apply to the commission if um, broadly the same factors that we just discussed for the single interest authorization are met. And once again, um, the exceptions are the exact same. Um, there is also that discretionary grace period. So, um, so Peter, with the supported stream, so this is really sort of going to be aged care, childcare, disability support services. Um, is it fair to say there's less exemptions available for employers in this area? Absolutely. So, yeah, the, the, the bill gives example of some industries and sectors which may be caught. It doesn't seek to exhaustively um, define this stream at all. But yes, this is the second stream of multi-employer bargaining we're talking about now. So we've had the first stream, that's the single single interest stream called the general stream. 
This is a supported bargaining stream, and it may be helpful to refer to this as the low pay bargaining stream. And as Paul said, there are a lot less exemptions in this, um, which I will get to in a moment. So the commission can make this authorization, that is it can compel multiple employers to bargain together, having regard to a range of factors. And these factors are slightly different to that general single interest stream. So the commission can have regard to the prevailing paying conditions within the relevant industry. And a factor there could be if low rates of pay prevail, the employers have to have a clearly identifiable common interest. The commission needs to consider if the number of bargaining representatives would be consistent with manageable collective bargaining. Um, the commission can consider any other matter it thinks is appropriate. And once again, some employees need to be covered by a union. So once again, unions will be involved in this stream of bargaining. The clearly identifiable common interests under the scheme are different to the single interest general stream. So the commission needs to look at the geographical location of the employers being substantially funded directly or indirectly by the federal, state or territory government and the nature of the enterprise, including the terms and conditions of employment in those enterprises. But once again, um, these are factors the Commission may consider, and there certainly are other factors they can take into account. The only exemption to not being named in an authorization, so not being compelled to bargain for a supported bargaining agreement, is if you have entered into an EA which is within its nominal term. Um, but there is a carve out here, and that is you cannot enter into an EA solely for the purpose of being named in a supported bargaining authorization. Um, so as you'll see on the screen there, um, there is no exemption for employers who employ less than 20 employees. You cannot agree um, with a union to bargain for a single enterprise agreement. And there is also no grace period. And similar to that single interest um, stream, there is also the capacity to be roped in. So that is employers who don't bargain for this agreement, which has been made, a union can then go to the workplace. And if the employees vote that up, um, they will become covered by that agreement. And finally, employees similarly under this stream can also take protected industrial action and the good faith bargaining applications apply. The um, final stream to discuss, so this is the third and final stream of multi-employer bargaining. So we've had the single interest general stream, stream. we've had the supported low paid stream. This is the cooperative stream. And I think the easiest way to think of this is as the voluntary, um, the voluntary stream. So this replaces the current scheme under the Fair Work Act where employers can bargain together for a multiple enterprise agreement. Um, I think it's easiest to think of this is a multi-employer enterprise agreement that is not a supported bargaining or a single interest agreement. So um, due to the voluntary opt-in nature of this stream, employees cannot take protected industrial action. And similar to those roping in provisions, um, employers and employees, so together by consent, um, can apply to be added by um, to be added to a cooperative workplace agreement. Um, so they are the three streams of collective bargaining. Mm, so look, a lot to synthesise there, um, but fair to say um, the roping in provision, which I've sort of not read a lot about, it seems to be very reminiscent of really the way modern awards or industrial awards were previously made. So um, it's certainly making for a complex multi-layered workplace relations system there. And perhaps some industries that have not been traditionally caught up in enterprise bargaining might well be caught up in the supported bargaining or low pay um, 
strained by the sound of it. Absolutely, and Paul, sorry, I, sh I should take the chance to say these three new streams, um, these come into effect on the 6th of June 2023 or an earlier date to be fixed by a proclamation. So it will be important to keep an eye on when, um, when that change is coming in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm curious about industrial action um, and, and what are the, the changes that have been made in that area. Peter, can um, employees still take industrial action and can, does it apply to all of those three streams that you've just referred to? Yeah, so um, industrial action can be taken in support of multi-enterprise agreements. However, not that final voluntary stream we were talking about, the cooperative stream. So if you have been covered by an authorization in the single interest stream, the general stream or the supported stream, which is the low paid stream, employees can take protected industrial action. Um, it is important to note that these applications are considered employer by employer. So each employer will need to, um, group of employees at each employer will need to apply to take this. And this inevitably could lead to a situation where if there are 10 employers bargaining for agreement, that eight of them do take protected industrial action and two of them don't. So, the, the changes to industrial action, um, they aren't as sweeping as some of the other changes we've discussed, but if an application is made for a protection action ballot audit, the Fair Commission must convene a conciliation or a mediation, and this has to occur before the ballot closes. If you are taking a, um, if you are taking protected industrial action under a multi-employer stream, you must give a period of notice of 120 hours, um, that is five days, and that is an increase from the three days that you need to give for a single enterprise agreement. Yeah, and you've got some pretty happy-looking employees on the screen there that they're about to strike or they've just got their protected action action ballot order granted by the Fair Work Commission. I'm guessing that's not employers clapping for that. Um, so I think it's also important to remember that only 14% of the workforce are union members at the moment anyway, and it's been declining over the decades, and only union members can take industrial action. Now, that hasn't changed under these amendments. That's right, isn't it, Peter? That oh, no, sorry, sorry, Paul. Yes, yes, that's that, that's correct. So the changes on the screen are, are substantially um, yep. what, what has changed, the notice, and it can be taken for multi-employer agreements. Sure. Okay, so there's now moving on to bargaining disputes. There's more power for the Fair Work Commission to arbitrate um, particular bargaining disputes. Peter, can you explain what are the requirements um, that are now in place for that? Sure, Paul. Um, so this new word, intractable, um, I think will be coming up quite a lot. So the Commission will have power to make what is called an intractable bargaining order if a range of factors are satisfied. So First, um, under the Enterprise Agreement, a bargaining representative must have brought an application under Section 240, which is the current section of the Fair Work Act, which hasn't changed, um, which allows the Commission to deal with a dispute and exercise its conciliation and mediation powers. Before um, making the declaration, the Commission must be satisfied there is no reasonable prospect of an agreement being reached if the declaration is not made. And finally, the Commission must be considered it is reasonable in all circumstances, taking into account the views of the bargaining representatives. So 
If these factors are met, the Fair Work Commission can make what is a workplace determination. That is, the Fair Work Commission can arbitrate terms, which will then become terms of your agreement when the agreement is finalised. Now, this applies to the single enterprise agreement stream, so the stream that existed before any of these reforms, and it applies to the all of the multi-employer streams, except for, once again, that cooperative and voluntary stream. Um, there is a minimum period which the Commission must observe before they make this um, declaration, and that is it cannot make a declaration the later of the following two dates, and that is nine months after the nominal expiry date of the agreement or nine months after bargaining has commenced. Okay, so it used to be the case that employers could um, be bargaining with the union for quite an extended period of time and basically just reach an impasse where um, no agreement could be reached. It, there was no bad faith bargaining, but um, they really just reached an impasse. That wasn't in the Fair Work Act as such, but was reflected in um, some of the case law around it. Um, that is that is now effectively gone, I think, with these changes, um, Peter, and a request for an, from an employer to go direct to the workforce for a vote will have to be an application to the Fair Work Commission. That's that's my understanding. Yes. Yeah, so unless um, all, all the unions agree, um, you will need to go to the commission and get a voting order request um, from the commission to allow. So um, certainly much harder now to put put a vote to the employers where the unions don't agree. Yeah, absolutely. So the notorious uh, better off overall test has also undergone some changes, but we're not sure if these changes are really an improvement to the boot or if it's just shifting issues around. Um, Pete, what's happened to the better off overall test? Yeah, so the better off overall test has undergone some changes. Some I think are very welcomed for employers. Um, others I, I'm not too sure about how these will play out in practice. But starting with the good news, um, there is no longer a need to consider prospective employees. You only need to consider the award-covered employees and reasonably foreseeable employees when you are considering if someone is better off overall. Um, the amending act confirms that the boot is a global assessment. That is, it's not a pedantic line-by-line -line assessment. If the employees, employers, and the bargaining representatives have a common view that an agreement passes the better off overall test, the commission will need to treat this as a primary consideration when determining if an agreement passes the boot. And, uh, another change is that the Fair Work Commission only needs to consider reasonably foreseeable patterns of work. So it does not need to consider a hypothetical pattern of work that is not considered to be reasonably foreseeable. So the idea of an agreement being derailed or needing undertakings because of a pattern of work that, quite frankly, is not going to happen, um, there is no longer a risk of that. And finally, if, if an agreement um, needs to be amended, the Fair Work Commission can now do this on its own. Um, it can still request an undertaking, but the Commission has the power to amend the terms of the agreement. Where the big change has come is now is that the boot used to give you certainty over the terms of your agreement. What can now happen is if the Fair Work Commission believes a pattern of work has changed, someone can apply and the boot can be reconsidered. And if it is found that an employee um, may not be better off overall because a new pattern of work is introduced, once again, the Commission can amend the enterprise agreement or it can accept undertakings. And the practical effect of this would be you would most likely have more favourable terms in your enterprise agreement than what was approved. So 
whilst um, it is it should be easier under these changes to get agreements approved, um, we think we will be seeing quite a few reconsideration applications of the PUC if um, an employee or union considers the patterns of work have changed. Yeah, I mean, obviously the modern award is still the baseline comparison, but um, I remember a, an agreement for a security guard company years ago failed the boot because hypothetically, if they rostered someone at 2am on a Sunday, um, they wouldn't be better off under the award, despite the company saying we're never going to have people working Sundays. So good to see that change has been made. But is there any limit on the number of times the better off overall test can be reassessed during the life of the agreement? Uh, there, there is no limit included, included in the amending act. So anytime um, someone considers the patterns of work have changed and they weren't considered at the initial approval stage, um, an application can be made. So there is no, no obvious limit to these applications. Right. Fun times ahead. Well, um, when it comes to, I guess, uh, objecting to a union's approach to negotiate an enterprise agreement, perhaps for um, employers that don't currently have one at all, there used to be a process to um, just say, no, we're not interested, and the union would have to go to the Fair Work Commission and get what's called a majority support determination, showing that at you know, least 51% of employees wanted to bargain with the employer for an enterprise agreement. Um, has this requirement been completely removed from these amendments, Peter? Um, it, it hasn't been completely removed, but the circumstances where majority support determinations will be required have been um, greatly reduced. So a bargaining representative will simply be able to write to the employer to initiate bargaining for a single enterprise agreement if the following factors are met. Um, the proposed EA will be replacing an earlier agreement which has passed its nominal expiry date. No more than five years has passed since the enterprise agreement's nominal expiry date and the replacement agreement will cover the same or substantially similar employees. So if all three of those factors are met, a majority support determination will not be required and bargaining can be commenced simply by written notification. If, for example, more than five years has passed since the single enterprise agreement's nominal expiry date, a majority support determination will be required. And it's important to note that these changes only apply to single enterprise agreements. So those three streams of multi-employer bargaining, which we discussed, this does not apply to them. And um, these changes have actually taken effect. So if those three requirements are met, majority support will not be required and written notification will be sufficient to commence bargaining. Okay. Uh, termination of enterprise agreements are uh, now harder to achieve um, under this legislation. There was a perception that uh, employers would sometimes um, unethically, in the view of unions, terminate or threaten to terminate an enterprise agreement during bargaining to put pressure on the other side to accept a deal. The practical effect being that uh, employees would otherwise revert to the modern award, award with the baseline conditions. Is it still going to be possible to unilaterally terminate enterprise agreements? Um, it will be, but it is going to be substantially more difficult. So these changes have also um, came come into effect already. So the, the circumstances in which a, an enterprise agreement can be unilaterally terminated are now limited to um, the, following, the following reasons. The first is its continued operation would be unfair to the employees covered 
The second is that the commission is satisfied the enterprise agreement does not cover any employees. Or the final one, which has a a few limbs to it, um, is the continuing operation of the EA would pose a significant threat to the viability of the business. The termination of the enterprise agreement would likely reduce the potentials of terminations. And finally, the employer gives a guarantee which, um, which preserves any termination benefits under that agreement if there are, for example, redundancies. And finally, the commission must terminate it only if it is satisfied it is appropriate to do so. One thing the commission has to consider now, and this um, really emphasises the point Paul was making about employees using this as a what's called a, a nuclear option in bargaining, and that is the commission must take into account the views of the parties who are currently covered by the agreement on its termination, and secondly, whether this termination would affect the bargaining position of the employees covered by the proposed enterprise agreement. Mm. Yeah, so not going to be able to be used for those tactical reasons that I think um, some higher education institutions uh, that had agreements terminated during bargaining were able to use it for a couple of years ago. Um, Okay, so uh, sexual harassment, the jurisdiction of the Fair Work Commission to deal with these sorts of matters has been greatly expanded. We already have stopped sexual harassment um, orders that can be sought since um, September 2021. The Fair Work Commission can now hear arbitrated disputes for the first time. Um, Peter, what what are the new powers that the Commission has um, to deal with these sorts of matters? Yeah, so the the first thing that has happened to the Fair Work Act is there is now an express prohibition on sexual harassment in connection with work. And this prohibition extends to all workers. So for example, your contractors, your volunteers, your trainees and so on, and also to proposed workers. Um, So as Paul was saying, there still is that jurisdiction to make stop sexual harassment orders. Um, But where the powers of the commission have expanded is, they can now deal with disputes about sexual harassment. Um, So reconciling these two avenues, think of the first as if you're applying for stop orders, it is um, future focused, it is preventative focused, preventing future sexual harassment. The second of dealing with a dispute is is remedying past harm of sexual harassment. So under the second um, introduction in the jurisdiction, an employee can apply to the commission and the commission can exercise its normal alternative dispute resolution powers that is conciliation and arbitration. If the matter is not settled, um, the parties can agree to arbitration, but if they do not, um, a certificate will be issued. And this is very similar to the current general protections framework. A certificate will be issued, which will give the employee 60 days, and that's instead of the 14 under general protections, 60 days to apply to one of the federal courts um, to, to pursue their claim where they can seek compensation. Um, If the matter is kept in the commission, that is, if the parties consent, the commission can order compensation, remuneration lost, or it can require the person to perform any act to redress the loss or damage of the sexual harassment. And finally, it is possible for an employee to um, apply for both um, a stop sexual harassment order and for the commission to deal with a dispute about sexual harassment concurrently. Mm, I mean, it does make sense for those uh, obviously, work-related um, conduct ought to be dealt with in the Fair Work Commission rather than um, state-based commissions. Um, but the compensation will be unlimited, um, which is which is interesting, or the power to order 
compensation will be unlimited. Uh, now, Peter, I haven't heard a lot of discussion about changes to the national employment standards, but um, it hasn't really got a lot of attention, but there have been some changes with family and domestic violence leave entitlements under the NES. What, what's happened there? So there is now an entitlement um, amending a current entitlement to five days of unpaid leave, family and domestic violence leave. And the new entitlement is to 10 days of paid um, family and domestic violence leave per year. So if you are a non-small business that is 15 or more employees, this commences for you on the 1st of February, 2023. Or if you are a small business that is 14 or less employees, um, this commences on the 1st of August next year. This entitlement is paid at the employee's full rate of pay, and that's important to note. So that's distinct from the base rate of pay, which quite a few um, national employment standards entitlements are paid at. And another important thing to note is this entitlement applies the same to full-time, part-time and casual employees. That is, it is not prorated for part-time employees and casual employees also have 10 days of this leave as well. Um, and this entitlement is 10 days per year. This doesn't accrue from year to year. So if an employee wants to take this leave, um, there are three parts that must be satisfied. They must be experiencing family and domestic violence leave. They must need to do something to deal with the impact of family and domestic violence leave. This may be attending an appointment at a police station, and it must be impractical for the employee not to do that thing um, outside. Sorry, it must be impractical for the employee to do that thing outside of the employee's work hours. Mm, okay. So there's also been some changes to uh, the anti-discrimination provisions in the Fair Work Act. Um, which has sort of been overlooked, I think, in um, with the focus on bargaining. What's changed in that area? Yeah, so these, these changes have also come into effect already. So what has happened is the discrimination provisions within the Fair Work Act have been amended to expand the categories of protected attributes, and the three that have been included now are breastfeeding, gender identity and intersex status. Generally speaking, um, under Commonwealth anti-discrimination law, these are not new attributes. These are in the discrimination legislation, but the Fair Work Act is being brought, brought up to speed so it is consistent with the Commonwealth provisions. So the, the biggest effect of this will probably be in the general protections, um, general protections provisions, where an employer is prohibited from taking adverse action um, against an employee because of a protected attribute. So these three attributes will now form part, um, part of those attributes which are protected under the Act. Okay, and finally, pay secrecy has received a bit of airtime uh, as well. What do employers need to know about the new pay secrecy provisions? Yeah, so um, I guess nicely following on from that theme of, of general protections, um, the first is that there is now a workplace right to ask employees about their rate of pay. Um, there is also a workplace of a workplace right for an employee to to disclose or not disclose their rate of pay. So, for example, if someone is asked about their rate of pay but they do not want to disclose it, they do not need to disclose it under these provisions. It gives the employees the right to ask. So, any pay secrecy clause that is in a new employment contract that is entered into from seven December. So, once again, this change has come into effect. That clause will have no effect. However, if you entered into an existing, if you entered into a contract before these reforms came into effect, that is before the 7th of December, that clause will continue to have effect until that contract is varied, at which point that clause will no longer have effect. 
And finally, um, after six months, there is a six-month grace period for these, but in June, um, it will also become an offence to include a pay secrecy clause in an employment contract. So for the first, right, right now, um, if you enter into one and it has a pay secrecy clause, it won't have effect. In six months, if you enter into a contract with a pay secrecy clause, it won't have effect and it will also be a penalty. Okay. So we've received quite a lot of questions. So, Peter, I think what we'll do is um, rather than answer them online, we'll respond to people uh, individually. Uh, some of them are quite specific and some of them are a little bit um, technical as well. But um, suffice to say, you know, these, uh, these amendments are pretty massive and uh, it's only the first tranche, right? So we're expecting a second tranche in about March, possibly. And um, Peter, what's, what's that going to cover? Well, who knows? Um, but some, some things that we are expecting it to cover is um, potentially something to do with casual employment after the new definition was inserted. Um, independent contracting. I think there is a real focus on the gig economy. And finally, I think where um, the, the policy which Labor has been very clear about is the same job, same pay, which I think will be a massive, massive reform. So we could be seeing another tranche, um, whispers suggest, as early as March next year. And depending on the detail, it could be as big as this tranche. And we may even see a, a third or fourth or fifth tranche as well. Oh, goodness. Well, look, thankfully, Christmas is coming up and um, we'll have the opportunity to, to think about <laughs> this a little bit more during the holidays. So um, thank you for everybody for joining us today. Um, we will respond to individual questions um, individually. Uh, anybody wanting a tailored briefing on the new IR laws uh, for your business, feel free to contact us for Further information, uh, I have an article coming out in the Australian Financial Review later this week uh, on these laws, so keep a look out for that. Join us in 2023 for more of our IR Insight webinars where we talk about more topical issues in the, the world of workplace law. We hope everyone has a restful and safe uh, break and look forward to seeing you in 2023. Thanks a lot.